Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. Well, uh, if you were here, you may remember that way back at the start of the year, um, we started working our way through Luke's Gospel, uh, and then we uh, got on to laments from the Psalms, and then we went through uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, and last week, and in the next two weeks, we're doing Philippians. But this week, and then fo- when I get back from uh, being away, we're uh, diving back into where we left Luke last. So uh, today we find ourselves uh, in chapter 6, halfway through chapter 6. Uh, and before we do that, though, uh, I wonder if you can think of a time where you were really confronted by someone about your beliefs, where they really challenged the way you thought, where they perhaps told you that your long-held and deeply uh, trusted beliefs were wrong. Uh, I can remember that uh, I thought when I was at school that I was a Christian because my dad was an Anglican minister and because I didn't go to parties. But it turns out that having a dad as a priest and not going to parties actually just means you're a strange guy with no friends, not that you're a Christian. Uh, Anyhow, uh, so you can stop feeling sorry for me, the next part of the story turns forward, because one of my friends, I did have some, uh, uh, came to school one day uh, and started talking to everyone about Jesus. We'd be playing handball and he'd be in the line and he'd say, what do you think about Jesus? And most people would be like, um, I, what are you talking about? Including me. And people obviously knew that I was the religious kid and so they asked me, what's going on here? Why uh, does he keep talking about Jesus? You never talk about Jesus. We like the way you do your Christianity better. And I'd say, well... I don't know why. I I don't know what I have no... I cannot explain this man's behaviour. And uh, I also wish that he would stop because uh, the constant talk was... was I was was getting flack for this because I was in the religious basket. I wished he'd stop talking about Jesus, obviously, ultimately, because I had no idea who this Jesus he kept talking about really was. I'd been to church all my life. I'd uh, heard all the scriptures read often. Uh, I I was brought up in the faith, and yet somehow I'd missed the fact that it was all about Jesus. I was still stuck on it's all about Noah and Sunday school stories. I didn't really appreciate that this man, this this friend of mine, he was a boy, not a man, uh, turned up uh, and started confronting this deeply held belief I had that I was okay because of who I was and the family family I was in. I didn't appreciate being confronted with the fact that I totally missed the whole point of church. And, of course, to cut a long story short, it was not too long after this happened that I did, in fact, come to meet this Jesus that my friend could not stop talking about. Well, as Jesus began his 
ministry uh, in Luke's gospel where we're up to uh, at the, in this, when we come to this part of chapter 6. Jesus uh, has begun a ministry and he's extremely popular. We read back in chapter 4 verse 15 that his, uh, he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. As he went around, as he performed miracles, as he taught with wisdom and insight, he was gaining great attention. People were were really enjoying this spectacle. But there were some who were starting to question it. Many of the religious leaders started to actually really listen to what he was saying, started to see the things that he did and think, hang on a second, this is serious. And so through chapter 5 and the start of chapter 6 before our reading today, we see Jesus uh, uh, teaching and doing things that, that bring him into direct conflict with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day. Because Jesus is doing things like saying your sins are forgiven, something only God could do back in chapter 5. Uh, Jesus is turning up to dinner with sinners and tax collectors at the end of chapter 5 rather than shunning them and telling them to uh, go away from him because he's so holy. Jesus in the start of chapter 6 is performing a miracle of healing on the Sabbath which is, you know, you're not meant to do that kind of work on the Sabbath and Jesus is uh, time and time again doing these things that outrage the Pharisees and each time they get outraged he steps in to more conflict with them. He doesn't back away go, whoops. No, he steps in and continues to push their buttons and continues to confront them with the fact that maybe they've missed the boat. Maybe they don't quite get it. And so, in verse 11 of chapter 6, right before our reading today, we read these words. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. These Pharisees are enraged because Jesus is confronting them with the hard truth that they need to reorder their lives, not around their own earning of salvation and their own uh, earning of religious favour and prestige in a religious community, but rather around serving the Lord Jesus and as because he is the son of God. We see this all the time, don't we? When people get challenged, they react badly. I saw on the news last night uh, that there was a pro-life, an anti-abortion rally in Brisbane. Uh, And people there, as these people simply marched through the streets and said, perhaps we shouldn't kill babies, uh, were faced with jeers, police arresting people who had knives, uh, who wanted to uh, protect a woman's right to choose, Uh, people reacting very poorly to this confronting fact that perhaps it was a little bit more complex than they would like to believe. Or here in Tasmania, we see it in the papers every single week, it feels like, don't we? Where as the diocese uh, comes up with this plan for redress and selling buildings, uh, this is coming up against this society view that the church is somehow some sort of worldwide property consortium rather than a movement of people who follow the Lord Jesus and if they want to, sometimes they chuck a roof over their heads. 
these deeply held beliefs, when they get confronted, when we think we're righteous because of them, as the Pharisees did, when we're confronted, we react badly. And it's in the midst of this building rage of the Pharisees uh, that Jesus chooses 12 disciples uh, and preaches his sermon on the plain, as it's called, not on the mount, uh, because he preaches from a level place, we see. So let's consider what's going on here and why Luke records these things where he does uh, before we dive into a little of what he says. And of course, we see uh, Jesus making, as uh, we heard in the kids' talk, a significant decision after prayer. He goes up uh, on the mountain, he comes back down, and he calls his disciples and he chooses 12 who he designates to be apostles. Why does Luke interrupt this story of building tension with the Pharisees uh, and confrontation of their religiosity with a story about choosing the twelve? Well, I think it's because what we're seeing uh, through chapters 4, 5 and 6 is the, the new thing that God is doing with Jesus, that he's uh, come to uh, fulfil the law of the Old Testament uh, and transform it into this new covenant uh, uh, thing that he is bringing. Uh, and so this uh, positioning of telling us who the 12 disciples are is very significant because it reminds us of, uh, of, of the beginning of Israel, of God's people, that grows out of the 12 sons of Jacob that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is saying... In this new covenant of grace, through faith in him, these 12 apostles will stand at the head of a new people of God who come to him not through descent, not through law-keeping, but through faith. And it's important that we note here that it's not out with the old and in with the new, but it's a transformation and a fulfilment. Luke doesn't include these words here, but in Matthew's Gospel, which recounts the same uh, sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, roughly the same, uh, or a lot of the same bits and pieces uh, in both, uh, as Jesus is talking about this, he says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus' message of uh, a new faith, new way of relating to God, is not... As in, it's not brand new, like chuck out the old, bring in the new. It's this fulfilment of the old and a, and a radical realisation of what it truly is. And that's marked with these 12 new leaders as opposed to the 12 old tribes, but also the giving of a new law. Of course, that's the, the, the next kind of major event in the Old Testament story, isn't it? 12 tribes, get a, they get the law from Moses. Here, Jesus gives a new law. That's what's going on in this Sermon on the Plain that we've got the first little bit of and that we're going to spend some time working through in coming weeks. Jesus, from verse 17 onwards, uh, starts to set new standards of behaviour and which, in contrast to the old law, are not about outward boundary markers, like if you do this, you're in, if you don't do that, you're out, but instead are about inward character and it begins this sermon on the mount of uh, sermon on the plain uh, in verses 17 to 26 with a great upturning of values jesus exalting what the world despises and rejecting 
what the world admires. And I thought it, uh, it would be worth spending some time considering these blessings and woes of Jesus and how they apply to us as members of the new covenant kingdom of God. Well, we see verses 20 to 22, blessings, verses 24 to 26, woes, and each one is paired with another one. So each blessing has a corresponding woe. So the first one we see, blessed are you who are poor in verse 20, uh, for yours is the kingdom of God. And the corresponding woe in 24, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now, this begs an important question, doesn't it? To be blessed, should we leave here today, open up our smartphones and liquidate our assets and empty them all into the church's bank account? And the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, not really. Um, but the, the question is, what, what does Jesus mean? Should we sell everything and become poor in order to be blessed? Does God think that it's better for us to have no money or lots? Or what, 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 like what, what does Jesus actually mean when he says these words? That if we're poor, we're blessed and ours is the kingdom of God. And if we're rich, we've already received our comfort. Well, this is where we have to take the Bible as a whole seriously and we see there are places like back in Proverbs where uh, the writer says these words about poverty in chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 uh, he says give me neither poverty nor riches but give me only my daily bread otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say who is the Lord or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. We see there don't we that there's some sense where the scriptures call us to actually be able to provide for ourselves. And that idea is taken up by Paul uh, in places like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, and 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 16 to 18, where Paul talks about how it's actually important as Christians that we do work and have money so that we can provide for our own needs and generously meet the needs of others. So I don't think Jesus is calling here for a life of destitute poverty where we suddenly uh, need other people to help us out all the time. And in fact, if we go to Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, uh, gives these same Beatitudes, he says there, Matthew adds, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And I actually think that uh, what we see when we take this uh, reading of uh, this part of Luke's gospel in context is that Luke is calling, is again making spiritual points because he's talking about the old Pharisee, the Pharisees and the old spiritual way of living, which is, has become religious uh, and kept them actually far from God, versus this new way of living under Christ uh, with the 12 apostles and now this new spiritual way of life. So blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I think is striving for, uh, is uh, driving us to a spiritual reading. That the Pharisees, that those potentially under the old covenant, 
had a tendency to rely on their own resources to get themselves close to God. Their own ability to uh, do the right thing and make themselves feel righteous before the Lord. And Jesus said, blessed are you who know that is not the case, but who come poor and empty-handed to the Lord and say, I need your help. That is the kind of attitude that the new covenant disciple of Jesus has. But I think there is a secondary wealth-related issue here. And that is that when we do have lots of money, as I think probably most of us here today by world standards certainly do, uh, then there is a tendency, isn't us, uh, for us to not be thankful to not be generous, but instead to hold and to hoard and to rely on it to get us through each and every day. In fact, our finances reveal a whole lot, don't they, about our hearts. And so we're called here to be generous people who give away what we have because we know that God will always provide. If we do that with our money, live generously, providing for ourselves, yes, and then generously providing for others, that reveals that we are these kind of people who come to God and seek his help in everything. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus continues, Blessed are you who, are hu- who hunger now, verse 21, for you will be satisfied. And the corresponding woe, verse 25, Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go hungry. Again, begs the obvious question. Should I eat less stroke nothing in order to feel hungry all the time and thus be more Christian? That's the literal kind of reading, isn't it? But again, we see Matthew's gospel helps us, I think, clearly see that Jesus has a spiritual uh, idea in mind where he adds hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think that Luke is implicitly implying the same thing here in the context of where this appears in his gospel. That we are to be like those who are hungry. I don't know if you can remember the last time you were really, 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 really hungry, hadn't eaten all day, you'd been on a big long walk or something and you're getting to the end of the day and your food had run out and you're starving when you get that hungry you can think of nothing else but getting food and becoming satisfied again and even the worst thing if you watch Survivor, I don't know if any of you watch Survivor you should watch Survivor Uh, it's a great show and you see these people who live on a little bit of rice and bean every day and are doing all this sort of uh, hard physical activity and challenges to try and stay in the game and then they win a reward and they get to eat pizza and drink coke and never have you seen a more satisfied human being uh, than one who's eaten rice for 25 days and now they're finally getting some pizza. Uh, And they just lap it up and they just are so happy. When we're really hungry, the satisfaction comes. And you know what? The pizzas don't actually even look that good that they're eating, but they don't care. Jesus is saying, I think, that he wants us to have that insatiable 
desire to grow and be fed in our relationship with him. To grow in our knowledge of him. To grow in our likeness of him. And that that's a desire that's meant to exist always. How can I get more of you, Lord? And the answer, well, I think it is to be a student of his word. To be constant in prayer and to be uh, regular in meeting together so that we can encourage one another as we seek to grow and love our Lord Jesus more and more. Come to God empty-handed. Desire him more and more. Then Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep, verse 21, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, verse 25, for you will mourn and weep. And again, we see this is not a command that we turn up to church in tears so that we somehow feel more spiritual. Rather, as one scholar puts it, uh, this is, I think, Jesus saying that if you love the Lord Jesus, if you're coming to him empty-handed, if you're desiring him more and more, then when you look at the world around you and you see how much it doesn't desire the Lord Jesus and how far from it is and how it groans under the pain of sin uh, and people are just making dumb decisions all the time uh, that are not good for them uh, and that uh, don't help them come under the Lord Jesus. That ought to, that ought to hurt you. We, we ought to look outside today. I remember when I was working in Melbourne, in Doncaster, uh, our church was about a kilometre down the road from the, one of the biggest shopping centres in Melbourne and you'd finish at church where maybe there'd been 250 people in the service that morning and you'd drive down to shopping town and guess what? There, would, there must have been 10,000 people in the shopping centre. You couldn't get a park, uh, you couldn't get any... It, it was just impossible. And you, and you think, this is sad. This is sad. This is, this is, this is where people are, are, are finding meaning and validation. Uh, they're entertaining themselves to death. We ought to be upset about the way our world spends its time uh, and the way our world so constantly falls short of God's standards. I mean, there's hundreds of reasons why we can cry about our world, aren't there? Poverty, greed... Uh, uh, on and on it goes God calls us to weep for these things because we love his righteousness more and we long to see a world transformed by it so let me give you some questions that I've been asking myself as I've reflected on this passage when was the last time you wept over our world and you saw something on the news and it just broke your heart or you, you went somewhere and you saw the way people were behaving and it just wrecked you because you knew it was the result of a fallen world. When was the last time you cried out to God and begged him to come back so that he could put this world to right? To bring justice to the injustice that surrounds us. Because that's what a blessed person does, says Jesus. We weep over this world and we rejoice when Jesus returns. Finally, Jesus says, 
Blessed are you, verse 22, who are hated, who are excluded, who are insulted, who are rejected because of Jesus. And the corresponding woe, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the false prophets were treated. It's interesting when we consider this final blessing and woe because it comes with a command. It's the only blessing that comes with a corresponding command. Look at verse 23. Rejoice in that day, that is the day when you're hated, excluded, insulted and rejected, and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. It's interesting, isn't it, that as Jesus promises blessing and encourages joy at the same time as saying your life is going to suck. And I've said this before as I've reflected on other parts of Scripture, but I think we've got to get a lot better at this, at leaping for joy when we get persecuted for following Jesus. Not easy, but it seems to be the fruit of a life that's totally sold out to him. I think too, though, we've got to be careful when we seek to understand what Jesus is saying here because I think we can go uh, too far. So I don't think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying if you're a real Christian, then like literally every time you move or speak or open your mouth, someone's just going to hate you. Uh, Just because you're a Christian, like you're just going to be hated all the time. Jesus is not saying therefore, like, that, that the mode of operation for Christians is to try and get hated. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that some, some people t- seem to take it this way. Like, I didn't get enough hate today, so I'm going to try and do something outrageous. But that's, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you and insult you and reject you because you're an idiot. He says... Because of the Son of Man. It's when we're living for Christ. It's when we're seeking to commend Christ to the world. And then we're rejected. And then we're hated. And then we're insulted. That's when we're blessed. So it's not an excuse for us to become obnoxious Christians who just ignore people around us and and be unkind and, and just speak the truth without any love. But likewise... It reminds us that the opposite is not true either. That the road to success as Christians is not getting the praise of this world. There's a a, a clergyman who's kicking around who uh, writes these witty signs you might have seen. Uh, And I, I follow him on Twitter. Help me. Uh, what a, I try never to go there, but sometimes I do. And all the signs are there, and they're all. Some of them are witty, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. But I've never, ever, ever seen a sign that says, "Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life." I've never seen a sign that said, "Follow Jesus, and He'll give you life to the full." I've never said, "Blessed are those who hate uh, 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 are you when people hate you because of Jesus." But I do see a lot of pats on the back from the world. A lot of people say, 
Why couldn't this be what all Christians are like? This is just wonderful. I don't know the man, so I can't, I can't, I can't speak where he's at. But when I watch him in public, it looks like a man on a mission to get the world's praise. And in doing so, he seems to have watered down some of the offence of the gospel almost entirely. We must be careful, mustn't we, that we don't seek praise from this world at all costs because that's what the false prophets did. We don't want to be like them. Jesus calls us to seek him wholeheartedly, to desire to be satisfied in him and him alone, to weep over this broken world and to live lives that so honour Christ that every now and again, or perhaps all the time, but as we're seeking to live like that, people persecute us. Because following Jesus is radical. That's what these blessings and woes show us, don't they? They're a complete reversal of what we would expect. They turn the world upside down. If we can be a church full of people like this, Desperately seeking our Lord Jesus, feeding on him, grieving over our sin and the sin of the world, rejoicing in the face of inevitable persecution, then we'll be a church that is radical, a church that has a great impact on the world, even if we're suffering for it. And we'll be a church full of joy, because when, that, when we live like this, joy comes. Well, I look forward to unpacking the rest of this wonderful sermon, this new law of Christ with us over the coming weeks when I get back uh, and Graham will be sharing with us too because it is a wonderful message of the different kind of life God has called us to in Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you were encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church. www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au Or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless. God bless.